If you've made it to 70 or 80 or 90 years old, you've probably seen some pretty big changes in the world and in yourself. And those changes don't stop as you age. Building boats, gaining PhDs and climate change campaigning are just some of the new passions of the women that Maggie Kirkman has interviewed for her new book, Time of Our Lives, Celebrating Older Women. Maggie Kirkman is with us today. She's also a psychologist and a senior research fellow in women's health at Monash University. Maggie, welcome. Thank you, Hilary. Now, you described the women that you interviewed as ordinary women who've lived extraordinary lives. Do you think we underestimate how interesting people's lives are once they're beyond a certain age? Oh, I think that's definitely the case. I think uh, when young people look at old people, they just see the wrinkles and the redistributed hair and uh, people who are perhaps a little bit frail and forget that they have lived the lives that young people live, plus all of their futures, plus uh, having lots of capacity to reflect on it and to have new thoughts and be wise. So I think it would be a great idea for everyone to listen to the stories of old women to find out the exciting things they've done. Well, for women, you write in the book, it's, it's layers of assumptions that are on us, isn't it? Not just about our age, but our gender. Oh, definitely, yes. So sexism combines with ageism to make life very difficult. And old women are often completely invisible, literally, I sometimes think. I tell the story in the book of when I was walking down the street last year, pushing my shopping trolley in Lonsdale Street, Melbourne, and four men came towards me, probably middle-aged. I couldn't go to the left without crashing into the wall. I couldn't go to the right without going into the traffic. And when the man walked straight into my shopping trolley, he was furious. So I said, well, the ground didn't open up and swallow me and I couldn't levitate. But they clearly had just not seen me. I mean, I'm, I'm a fairly prominent size. I'm tall. I'm glad pushing a shopping trolley, but was invisible. Tell us about some of these women, Maggie, because they've got really diverse lives and passions, haven't they? They have. So there's Mig Dan, who uh, received a PhD at 80, and she was looking at, uh, she was doing it in fine art, talking about complex uh, philosophical ideas and doing her own sculpture. Uh, then there's other women uh, who, as you say, built a boat. And then uh, rode it. And then rode the it around the bay. And as her son said to her, but mum, you can't swim. <laughs> But I she can kept row. rowing, yes, and she said that when she no longer cares about her hair, she'll take up uh, swimming. <laughs> <laughs> when will that day yes, come? When, when will that day come? Although it is interesting how these things change. I used never to leave the house without wearing makeup. And I was encouraged a bit. First of all, when I took up running when I was 64 and my daughter said, nobody will take you as a serious runner if you wear makeup. Oh. And then lockdown. And so I've taken to going out without it and nobody cares nobody notices and that is one of the great things about getting older but in the book there are women who've uh, developed plant nurseries uh, who've uh, campaigned for the environment who've uh, continued teaching one 92 year old has her own uh, tutoring service it's just everything you can think of, from volunteering work, paid work, and all kinds of imaginative and creative work. I loved re- reading about the woman who's a civ- civil celebrant, oh. and she has taken up orienteering, but I thought, what a great perspective as a civil celebrant, because you would have seen so many relationships and lives come and go. That's Rosemary Salvaris, and uh, it was interesting the way she began being a civil celebrant. She was a principal in a school and had some deaths of students and staff during the year and thought that she just didn't know how to manage everyone's grief. Thought she was taking up a single subject at Monash, and it turned out to be a postgraduate qualification. And then she became a civil celebrant, as you say. Uh, And 
I think that has continued her perspective. She loves doing what she was doing. There was a while where she couldn't do funerals because she'd had a baby uh, die. But uh, then she started doing the funerals of friends and so on. And she says that in orienteering, she doesn't try to compete with the young people, but people her age look out. <laughs> she wants to win. <laughs> well, and there's some fantastic celebrations of achievements coming through on our text line to Maggie Kirkman. Pauline says, I'm turning 76 and I love learning languages. At present, I'm enjoying Latin, French, Italian and Dutch. And another one says, I'm 58 and I just bought my first horse. So I imagine riding off into old age for as long as I can. Do send through your wonderful moments as an older uh, woman as well. We're speaking with Maggie Kirkman, who's written this book celebrating the lives of older women. It's called Time of Our Lives. And with us too is Bee Toes. She's one of the women that Maggie interviewed for the book uh, in her late 70s at the moment. Bee, welcome. Thank you. Now, a disclaimer, I do know Bee. I've met you and uh, I know your family. You were 76 when you took up powerlifting. Was that something that you had imagined that you would do ever? Never. I've never been an an athlete or an activist or at all. So, so it's it's been a real change in my life. Well, and has it been a smooth journey from this, you know, five foot three, 90 pound weakling to the uh, Amazon that you are today who can deadlift more than your own body weight? Or did you have to take some side trips along the way? It was smooth because I had an excellent coach. She lives in London and she coached me during uh, COVID. And that was very, very smooth. The only hiccup I had was last September, and I fell and I damaged my knee again. So that is the vicissitudes of life and old age, isn't it? They they do come back to to hurt us from time to time. But B, it's really fascinating how in the book the story is that you you struggled to open this jar of passata at a family dinner that you were creating, and that sparked the journey. Was it really that? Because you can get those little doodads that open jars. It it seems like maybe there was more going on for you. No, no, it's like absolutely all. I've been a strong woman. I grew up on a farm, and so it was something I could always do, and then suddenly I couldn't do it. And my son said, well, do farm- the farmer's walk. That means you pick up the heaviest thing you can, and you carry it as far as you can, and you put it down. And that makes you stronger. Wow. And it does. Yes, so, and so you do that in one direction with one hand and then back in the other hand. What, what did you try that with? Suitcases loaded with bricks. Wow. Yeah. I didn't have anything else in the house, so I used that. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to damage myself. And I asked a friend who is American, but she lifts for Thailand, and I said, would you coach me? And she said, no, but I have a friend who will. And that's how I met my coach. Well, and awesome. yeah, I mean, I'm wondering, B, what kind of images of older women you grew up with? What did you think was in store for you that, you know, might have been quite different to the, the powerlifting image? I have a grandmother who has a mother of 12 living children. And she was had osteoporosis very badly, could hardly lift her head. So that wasn't a good image. And on my father's side, I had mother, a grandmother of five who was completely dependent on her husband. So that wasn't an image that I wanted to have either. So this was not something that I was patterning myself on anybody. Mm. Well, what kind of changes and benefits has the strength training brought you, Be How are things different for you now? 
Well, life is just easier. I, I can walk confidently. I can climb stairs. I can go walking on the beach. I can walk 20 kilometers without drawing a breath. It's Life is just easier. And, you know, making beds used to be a pain in the butt, but it isn't anymore. And just, I can't, I can't even begin to talk about it. Traveling is easier. I can lift my own suitcase, put it up on the rack above the seats. Um, it's just easier. Yeah, and it sounds like you're less dependent on people around you. I've never been dependent, and I've sort of warded it off by being stronger, Yeah. Yeah. And what's fun is going to a gym now because it's not about what I look like. It's about what I, am I stronger today than I was yesterday? And so the girls in tights and the, the boys in, you know, whatever, doing whatever they're doing isn't any of my business. My business is dealing with the, the iron at the end of my barbell and, and lifting it up. That's my business. And it's really confidence inspiring for me. Yes, um, yeah, it's an amazing feeling getting stronger. We're speaking with B Toes, who's one of the amazing number of women in Maggie Kirkman's new book, Time of Our Lives. Maggie, I, I was really intrigued to see that uh, B, like a lot of the other women, was surprised when you said you wanted to interview them. What was going on there, do you think? Yes, people said, women said, nobody's been interested in our stories. And I, I think that underlines all of this, that you can stick with your stereotypes and see old women as just helpless or scary old witches. Whereas if you know their stories, you see that they're a repository of so many exciting and interesting things. Well, and the, the form that you gave them was headed Silent Generation, because this is the, the name that's given to the people born within this span. How accurate or useful is that? In one way, it's useful because it, it does demonstrate that these women grew up in an era where they're expected to be quiet and non-complaining. Their parents had come through their depression. Uh, there'd been wars and they just had to get on with life. But in practice for personal experience, many of them rejected it very roundly and with some very forceful language. So they have individually been quite uh, vocal, I think, although many of them did conform to what was expected of them when they were young. They had to give up work when they married. They were expected to look after their children and their husbands and then their parents. So a few of the women only blossomed after all of those responsibilities left them, although some had to struggle all of their lives. And you see these diverse stories. Well, yes, and you note in the book too that, you know, some people were uh, identified as feminists, some didn't, and some were kind of in the middle. And, yeah, there's a diversity of experience as there is among all women, all genders, all kinds of people. B Toes, I want to come back to your story for a moment because when we talk about fascinating stories that people don't think are particularly interesting because they're their own stories, you were born in a Mennonite community in Canada and apparently your son has said that the biggest journey you made was from the farm to university, not from, you know, travelling intercontinental. How big was the contrast for you between that family environment and where you found yourself in in uh, higher education? Well, it was a 180 degree switch and I made the mistake of many young people of throwing out all of my upbringing in exchange for what I was offered at university. And I think that's pretty common. You just take the opposite side of the same coin. And so that was my initial reaction. Went from being a conservative, Christian, God-fearing, man-fearing man, woman to being an atheist, in this, like almost overnight. And I think that my 
maturity, it took me at least 10, 15 years to actually realize that it isn't one or the other, but it's actually, you have to think about it. And you have to choose what's right, not just knee-jerk reaction against what you're brought up with. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Well, and it resonates with the conversation you had with your grade 11 teacher that sounds like it was quite a pivotal (laughs) point for you. Tell us about that. Oh, his name was Jim Revick, and I hope he's still alive. He said to me, why bother? Why bother going to uni? You will just get married and have a baby. And I thought, no, I won't. (laughs) So I am going to finish school, though you did get married and have a baby pretty soon after that, didn't you? Oh, well, for the the time, I was late. I was 26 when I had my son. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting, isn't isn't it? Well, and looking at how the time has changed is fascinating, isn't it? Because, you know, the the generation that your children are growing up in and grandchildren, the, the perspective is so different. That's right. At 23, you were just starting, and I was already married at 22. So, yeah, it's different. Well, and just one other strand of your story, B, that that stood out in your chapter in Maggie Kirkman's book, Time of Our Lives. You mentioned how you struggled to be taken seriously when you tried to get support for problem drinking as an adult. And I bring this up because I think it's something that, you know, a lot of people will will uh, find familiar to them. And it's, you know, it's it's an extra element of the diversity of our lives. What happened there that people didn't believe you when you said you had a problem? Well, I drink like like a Canadian, to be a generalist. You can't show that you're drunk if you're a Canadian. Australians, you're allowed to be drunk and noisy and carry on. But Canadians can't. And I was born in Canada. So in Australia, I drank quietly. And so I would be completely drunk and completely blacked out, but still quiet. I was never noisy. So the two people that I asked, one a priest and one a colleague, said, no, you still got a job. You're fine. And I thought, well, that's not really normal because I'm taking photographs at parties so I can remember who's there. That's not normal. And it was uh, until I was was in my mid-50s before I actually quit because I couldn't believe that, that I didn't... I knew that I had a problem, but I didn't know how to address it because nobody would acknowledge it. And finally, I did it myself, so... That was, that was the end of my alcoholism. Yeah, and, and it's, yeah, it's an amazing journey. I highly recommend reading a lot of the chapters in this book. It's called Time of Our Lives by Maggie Kirkman. You're hearing from B. Toes, who features in the book. Maggie, we're thinking just about the level of change that people have witnessed. I mean, these are people who didn't grow up with the internet, didn't grow up with computers of any kind, didn't grow up with social media. Uh, what are some of the assumptions around older women's uh, proficiency with technology that you've seen? play out? Well, it's assumed that uh, you can't manage it and that you'll fall apart if somebody puts a, a, a phone in front of you, uh, much less a computer. And some women did have difficulties with it, but others are highly proficient and have been using all kinds of complicated technology since they, they emerged and are themselves in their 80s and 90s training other people to use technology. So uh, I interviewed uh, Judith Harley 
who's in her 90s and an artist and writer uh, who paints every day and took up writing in her 60s. And while I was talking to her, she, she took a phone call on her uh, uh, smartwatch and uh, was dealing with all kinds of complicated things on her computer. She knew what she was doing. And she said that was one of the things that has kept her connected in old age, mm. that she can communicate with people like this. So it is important. And I think when we're talking about how we help people develop uh, happy old ages where they are still contributing to society. We need to make technology available and we need to help train women. Well, and B, I can hear you nodding and smiling in the background. I, I do hope yes. that you're posting selfies of your powerlifting, but you're also a big traveller. I imagine that you've had to navigate lots of new digital tech in that and just in staying in touch with your far-flung family. I do. I, I love technology, though. And it was because of my students. I used to be a teacher in my previous life. And they would say to me, you can't break it. Just press the button. (laughs) (laughs) Are you sure? And I can remember students giving me the phone and saying, do it. And that was how I learned. I don't know that whole you can't break it thing. I think if you've ever lost an essay in an Apple IIe, (laughs) you're a bit wary. Yeah, that's true. But I do have uh, the cloud, and I've had the cloud since it was available because of that. <laughs> That's true. It's just fascinating looking through some of the experience in this, experiences in this book. And Maggie, I, I was really excited too to see you say, look, I, I note that not everyone's experience of ageing will be the same, and it's quite dependent on your material circumstances and what how they've played out through your life. What are some of the ways that we can ensure that more older women can live up to their full potential as a society? What do we need to do? I think we need to ensure that we have a community in which everybody can participate, and that will take a personal engagement with other people. It will take societies and communities that welcome old people or people of any age and policies that uh, allow people to participate. So the idea of the 15-minute or the 20-minute community can be helpful. If people can walk to wherever they need to go in order to contribute, they don't need to be isolated in warehouses. And if uh, people are encouraged to mix. I loved the ABC documentaries, Old People's Home for Four-Year-Olds and Old People's Home for Teenagers. It just demonstrated how everybody benefited from mixing. So we need policies and an environment that encourages this. And that supports young people as well as old people. And I think a... uh, A good old age begins probably before birth. You need to assist parents to be able to parent well. And uh, you need to ensure that children are nurtured and encouraged and not incarcerated. And when uh, Professor Jane Fisher and I earlier interviewed women from the baby boomer generation about their mental health, it was evident that what had happened throughout their lives contributed to their good mental health in older age. And if they had not been supported, if their parents had not been supported, if they'd experienced cruelty and violence, it was very difficult to have a good old age. But that's something that everybody supports. You can't just rely on qualities of the individual. Maggie and B, it's been so wonderful speaking with you today. B, I look forward to having you over to my house to open my Passata jars because I think there's 
<laughs> an inequity going on here. And Maggie Kirkman, <laughs> lovely to chat. And Maggie Kirkman, author of Time of Our Lives, Celebrating Older Women, Senior Researcher in Women's Health at Monash Uni. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And bye, Bee. Lovely to talk to you again. <laughs> well, you're listening to Life Matters. And I wanted to say, you know, Bee's list of who she is and what she does, power lifter, teacher, author, volunteer, mother, grandmother, world traveller, lifelong learner. That's just half the list. Uh, so many texts coming in too. Catherine says, I just published my first novel at 73. It came out in February. It was the Agent SMH pick of the week. I plan to write many more. I took up pickleball two years ago at 77, says Beth. I'm addicted, but I've never felt better. My lovely wife, says uh, Mark in Mittagong, the light of my life at age 69 still regularly goes to ballet lessons, loves it and can still do point. I think that's brilliant. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.